We're back. Hey, everyone. What's good? What is good? Um, there's so much to talk about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where to start. Uh, but yeah, let's jump right into it. I think one of the first things we have to talk about that everyone has been talking about for the last week is ready oh. drop it entanglement 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 there's so much to talk about here and i'm sure uh, everyone has talked about all of the things i want to talk about my personal favorite from the 12 minutes of um jada bringing herself to the to the red table um is I think it was like the last 30 or 45 seconds. Uh, she says to to Will, um, I didn't think you were going to have the deep capacity to love me the way I needed to be loved. Mm. And he asks her, how am I doing? And she says, you know, she affirmed him. And she says, you're doing all right. You're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, like, it could choke me up right now. It brought a tear to my eye because... Um, there is such a need, uh, you know, you fall. I mean, uh, if you're like me, I feel like I just got my, my <laughs> chart read yesterday and I didn't realize, uh, how, um, my Venus is in Scorpio and I didn't realize uh -oh. <laughs> that, uh -oh. you know, every time I fall in love or, you know, it's like every other day and I'm, you know, constantly, um, like, oh, yeah, no, I don't think this person has the capacity to love me. Like, next, mm. right? Uh, but this conversation between Jada and Will, and she's saying, like, yeah, you know, I didn't know you had that deep capacity to love me. And we've entered into this new place of non, um, what do you say, non-conditional love. And yeah. Will says, you know, to have the freedom to make mistakes without losing your family is so deep. It's so good. It feels mm. good. And so I, you know, there's the messy, all the messy stuff, but I feel like that's my favorite part of the conversation. What are you mm. thinking? What'd you hear? Yeah, you know, it, what set me off, it was, uh, it was the memes, like the memes of Jada at the table. And like, they're like, uh oh, Jada, bring yourself to the table. And she like caught on to that and was like, all right, that's what we're going to do. Like, I was, I was interested before with the whole August thing, like the interview, I was like, uh, this is just messy. But the fact that, she decided to come to the table and then Will came to the table. I was like, okay, okay. Yeah, let's Jada done put Will through some shit. You could tell. <laughs> <laughs> Jada, um, and part of it, I, I know because uh, at the end, he gets a little messy and he's like, no, I'm going to get you back. And she's yeah. like, no, I don't think it's about being petty. And he's like, no, actually, I, I feel it on this one. Uh, he was like, I feel like I'm, you know, that person uh, at like the press conference. Um, but yeah, it was just, a, I think, a beautiful conversation uh, before they were goals, right? Relationship goals, marriage goals. Mm -hmm. And I feel like now they're even more goals to me. This idea yeah. of life partnership over marriage, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. here for it. Yeah, like I, I really appreciate the fact that they like for a moment like decentered August and just were like, all right, we coming to the table, like all these rumors have been going on long enough. And like though we do deserve our privacy, 
and to go through our relationship privately, like somebody else got involved in their relationship and like made it public in a way. And so the fact that like one, it came up with all these different names and one minutes for like what the situation was. It was like entanglement and relationship and a situation. And then Will was like a transgression, you know, being trying to be funny. But right. Like, she was clear to clear that up. She's not, <laughs> it wasn't no transgression because guess what? We weren't together. Um, so I appreciate that. And I also appreciate when Jada takes her power all the way back, mm-hmm. saying that Will gave, uh, August was like, oh, Will gave permission over this. And she was like, no, actually, I'm the only one who can ever give permission on this. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Period. That's it. Yeah. You know, for, for me, like, I think what I took from it by the end of the, the you know, the 12 minutes was that, like, you know, what do we really expect out of our relationships with other people, whether it was mm. the the entanglement, whether it was the, um, you know, as well and Jada call it the life partnership. Right. Because they're not in a marriage or they're legally married, but they're in a partnership. And, um, you know, they cover so much like we're talking about, like how we let our childhood traumas put us in a place where like we're trying to find our healing by healing somebody else and not actually right. spending time with ourselves. Or like the lack of communication between partners, like like what does it mean to have enduring love in the midst of all this? And like Will to identify himself as being like, you know, what he what he call himself? Like uh, he he feels like he was the the partner who has to stand by the by the president oh, or stand right. by like a leader mm-hmm. and just be there. Like I fully support my partner. So like yeah. e- even that dynamic, I was just like, I was like. It's hot, you know? Yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm here for all of it. And I think that the more real that we can get about, you know, as someone who is uh, who is not married, um, I'm just like, okay, you know, there's this whole idea of, um, you know, wanting to get married and by this time and whether you're um, someone who is, Uh, really unlearning all of that uh, patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, right? Because all of Mm. this is about uh, all of those things. It's so nice and refreshing to just like see someone doing their work. And so for that, I love Will and Jada. I applaud Mm. them. I'm so grateful that they would be vulnerable in this type of way uh, in front of all of us. I mean, they said they broke the record for like Facebook. Uh, I I don't want to say it's like 12 or 13 million in like the first day um, wow really yeah I, it might have been more I, I don't you know don't quote me on that but just, yeah, yeah I'm here for it yeah, yeah it was beautiful I, it was courageous and like you know I, I think often like you know we have our like black excellence or like you know these these, these false representation of, of what a relationship is and the fact that like they decide to be transparent and like really challenge binaries about like what mm-hmm. is standard in a relationship between mm-hmm. people who identify as a, as a man and a woman and um, really being like, nah, this is about love and this is about our commitment to each other and trying to figure it out and allowing each other to kind of grow and to mess up. What they say, yeah. bad, bad relationship for life. Bad I marriage like for life. 
That was, really? was kind of corny, but it, it was cute, you know. Because oh, of, yeah, like the little sh- handshake. Yeah, that was being corny. But I thought, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people, <laughs> I saw, I might have saw that hashtag a bunch of time under people's uh, pictures the next day, like bad marriage for life. Mm. Um, yeah, and for everyone who is entangled, for oh. all of us who are uh, <laughs> untangling. There you go. Oh, I don't even, right. For all <laughs> of us that are untangling and in entangled and uh and hoping to be entangled um yeah i mean just i feel like this is a good opportunity to do your work uh it's so beautiful i love it i'm here for it thank you will and jada next we have a very important conversation and guests with us uh dj will introduce in just a second i promise folks we are not going to just have all Bay folks uh, as guests. Uh, I just happen, you know, when spirit tells you it's time to bring this person on, it's time to bring this person on. And the last two just happen to be my homies and happen to be from the Bay. So I'm uh, really juiced for the uh, conversation today. Who do we have, DJ? On this week's episode of Black Love Brown Pride, we have Hager Seven Asifa, who is an activist and installation artist turned urban planner. Seven is based in historic West Oakland, where he focuses on decolonizing the built environment by activating cultural hub spaces in urban communities, especially where Black people are being removed. His work is inspired by growing up in Black consciousness of the, in the Black conscious, uh, his work is inspired by growing up in the Black consciousness of the 90s and the evolving Afrofuturism movement of today. Thank you, Seven, for, for coming. I guess. Yeah. We are so grateful to have you. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Um, So, you know, so much of uh, what we do in terms of like bringing people on is not to get so deep in the weeds of their work, but really just to check in on them to see how they're doing as people. Because in movement work, we forget often that like the people leading the work are people. So how how are you in this moment? How's the city? And and like, how have you been taking care of yourself? Mm, Interesting. Yeah. I have been good. I've gotten back into the fitness. This COVID situation has definitely made people more uh, cognizant of their self-care and our self-care practices. So um, I've been good, you know, um, definitely looking at the bigger picture of uh, what this means uh, strategically for our people um, and as far as some of the dynamics of control that's happening with 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 what we see as far as like uh just events and gatherings and the social stuff it just seems like it's all changing but yeah i've been cool Mm -hmm. i've been good have you been able to spend more time with like family or what's it looking like day to day i still yeah i still go and visit my family my parents my parents live in berkeley i live in oakland um and uh, we did have this Juneteenth where we brought out some art installations and community did come out in a, in a, in a you know, uh, social distance kind of uh, way. So that's still, so some of these big community events have still happened here in Oakland, um, which has been good to just see community out and celebrate something as important as Juneteenth. Um, but yeah, uh, I've still been able to see immediate family and, uh, and my nucleus of friends. How have you how have you been uh able to like you know hold hold that space for a community given that we you know like you talk about the Juneteenth event, but like 
what's what has it been like to try to hold community in this like in this moment? You know, I think um, for a good period of time, and I was talking to Marie yesterday about it. I think you know, as as a arts org and as an activist, you really get caught up in the doing of things, right? And um, I've been able to step back a little bit from that and look at the processes and build up the fundamental structure of the org so that we can be more effective in how we do what we do and just reach a broader base, right? Because making content and speaking to social issues, addressing our people, um, whether it's Oakland, New Orleans, New York, it's some of the same issues, right? So I've been able to kind of step back a little bit right now and, and, and look at how our work of creating cultural content uh, around black conscious issues can reach a bigger audience and how we can strategize and build our team so that we can do this in a, you know, in just a more sustainable way. Cause you just get caught up in the day to day of things and you don't get to step back and look at how you're approaching things and, and what you're saying you're doing and whether that is the right way to do it, or it's up to date, you know, uh, as far as having impact. Right. So that's kind of where we're at right now is really, really looking at the nuts and bolts of things and, um, and the big picture strategic planning of things. Mm. What about, um, you know, you said that like this moment um, is like forcing you to, to, to be reflective. I'm wondering if you could uh, share with us your, your earliest memory of like being in community. Earliest memories of being in community um, in the work or just in general here in my experience here in, in, in Oakland? I, I think in Oakland, like, let's go, let's go back to like that first moment you felt like, yo, I'm, I'm connected. This is, this is my place. This is my home. You know, uh, I think Oakland has a special resonance of black energy that is very powerful and it kind of grows in, grows on you slowly to understand what it really means to be raised in, the, in a city that just ha- is built around such powerful history of black resistance um, and the black power movement. Um, my awakening and connection, I guess, came maybe in junior high school after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that set into context what this city means for me and a lot of the relationships I built and the growth that I had started in junior high and high school and going to uh, Berkeley High School, which had its it had its own African-American department, right? And community in that tribe of Black Conscious Awakening was like so vibrant there. So that's probably my really like first like feel of um, doing community events and feeling like what it means to be raised in this part of uh, the Bay Area. I'm curious, actually, what I mean, because as a Habesha person, you know, like how you then do you see that the same or do you see that as as being different? If you can explain maybe for our listeners, uh, just because it's such a deep community in the Bay, in Oakland or in the Bay in general. And so uh, do you distinguish the two in terms of like er your earliest memory of community or do you not? Well, I guess. To answer that, I mean, you know, I, I got to speak on how I arrived here in America. We are, my, pa- my family immigrated first by foot from Eritrea into Sudan and then from Sudan here into Oakland. And we were 
landed in East Oakland in, in, in the mid eighties during the heart of like the drug war and, and the crack epidemic. Right. So there was a lot going on here. So, uh, in the streets, it was wild. You know, uh, the hood was crazy at the time, but inside the house, it was still, I still grew up with a very, uh, traditional Eritrean, um, upbringing. So I had a mix of both, you know, and, um, that shaped kind of my, my cultural upbringing that I was able to have both worlds and understand both worlds and going, growing up in the conscious era or like reading the autobiography from Malcolm X that helped me shape and understand the connection between the Africans of the motherland that are still there and those here. Right. And what, the um what the experience of of slavery did to break up the fabric of that relationship between both both african peoples right um so that gave me the the, the pan-african you know perspective that uh gave me an understanding of why my brothers and sisters here behaved the way they behaved and why my parents inside the house looked at them as maybe even threats, right? As like, oh, what are they doing? They're so different. They're doing this, right? But I understand the psychology at play. Um, because I was, I was, I was, I was, uh, I grew up in that, and that con that that consciousness woke me up and gave me that kind of bigger picture understanding. So to answer your question, it was both worlds and it was beautiful because I could, I could, I could kind of relate to both sides. And that to to speak on a brother who who did that in a beautiful way is Nipsey Hussle, right? Dad Eritrean, mom African-American, have both perspectives. And you could see that in, in, in the spirit of, of how he was doing his work and how he was thinking, right? Um, and so uh, it's interesting to see um, his world and how he was able to grow and impact the world on a bigger scale, right? But, uh, it, 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 you know, just, just his consciousness was, 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 was in, in his connection with both cultures really uh, was... Uh, was beautiful to see. Yeah. Do you see both of those things coming into your work? Um, I definitely see that. I, I mean, you know, the, the need to, to uh, bring a, build a bridge between the next generations of, of Africans and African-Americans and just Africans as a whole is quite necessary. Right. Cause I think uh, as we look at as, as black folks here in, in, in America, uh, look at exit strategies and maybe possibly go back and migrate back to Africa. We need to have that bridge. We need to have that cultural understanding about, you know, uh, what is, what's going on in Nigeria, what's going on with the younger generation in Nigeria, in Eritrea, in Ethiopia, uh, in Ghana, um, so that we don't duplicate some of the same habits of, of, of what uh, colonial um, white supremacy has created. Right. So uh, we definitely, I see uh, the hub spaces that I'm trying to, facilitate or that I have facilitated uh, has being a space where uh, those cultural identities can really come together and melt and, and work together on things. It's, it's definitely um, necessary. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was, you know, it's interesting just like thinking about it and looking at your, your, your work through um, the Orlando museum and like you do so much, the hub does so, so much, uh, all kinds of programming uh, all type of community work and even helping people to think through like where where economics is at play with culture and community health. I'm wondering if you can just like maybe bring us into like why Elena 
Like, why is the Elena in Elena Museum? Uh, Elena means we are here in the language of Tigrina. And so it's a statement of well-being. It's kind of a statement of defiance as well. Like, no matter what, we're present, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the museum add-on was a play on the Western concept of museums, which... Uh, you know, it has an element of colonization, right? You walk into this exhibit space, which has all these conquered memorabilia of native peoples. So we are an active museum. We are a cultural content making org. So the museum part initially actually came about because Elena by itself was copyrighted. I don't know who owns it. So we we're like, yeah, let's add this museum part of it and play on that museum concept. Mm. How do you feel like, you know, from the time you 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 incepted the idea of a Elena, right? At least in the museum moment or the nonprofit moment, like why why do you feel that's relevant right now in this moment, given, you know, there's there's a lot going on, like even more than um what is normal for, for black and brown people in this country right now. So like how do you why do you feel that's relevant in this moment? I, I think right now uh, where white supremacy is tactically moving on is black cultural identity, you know, and conquering that. And if we don't find ways to really gather our people to recognize how powerful, how necessary it is for us to own our own cultural identity and to produce content from it, uh, then we are just going to, enter a new phase of, of, of you know, uh, dominance, you know, where the next generations are not going to know what it means to be uh, of any African identity because it will be owned by those that are here to capitalize on it, right? So it is critical for us at, uh, in this period to really speak on it, to create gathering spaces where folks can really feel Black energy, in all its, uh, you know, forms. And so our spaces have just been hubs for that um, and to support the, the artist and the range of what it means to be an artist from a writer to an architect, to a uh, uh, visual person, um, just those that really want to be around our culture and to celebrate it, right? Um, and to honor it in a way by um, by looking at ways to produce content from our, from our, from our cultural identity. Yesterday we were talking and you, know, you were talking about, um, I, I didn't understand the like producing content. And remember I was asking, I was like, okay, why is it so important to produce content? And, uh, and, and we talked, we later went into like talking about how, um, we know of the greatness of different uh, civilizations and different, you know, even our people in, in different times and spaces because of the artifacts and, you know, the different uh, pieces of art and knowledge and uh, things that we've produced. And so would just uh, love to hear more about what, um, from the uh, uh, Elena Museum, what are like your favorite pieces and like things that have come out of that? Favorite pieces. 
to, to or, and I know that it's a space also. So it could even be like parties, gatherings, things that have come out. Uh, Cause I know, you know, the, the space is always jumping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More than, more than um, say events. And it, it really is about bringing the ancestors forward through experiences, through content making, through art, Right. And when I say about why it's so important to produce content, that's the only way to, 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 to keep the ancestors alive. Right. When we look at our ancient symbols, when we look at our ancient ways, if we uh, in the present don't look at ways through through our what it, how we're producing content today to bring those um, cultures forward, it just kind of dies. Like I'm just thinking about my language. Right. If I don't find ways between the many the beauty of my people's indigenous way of writing to like throw that on some art pieces, throw that on a, you know, a uh, physical piece of material so that people know, yo, like y- y'all have your own way of writing. Y'all have your own way of speaking. That's beautiful. Like, so that's the importance of it to me. It's, otherwise it just dies. It doesn't really die actually. Like Google translate will, will definitely pick it up and they'll profit from it. Right. So technology and uh, the, the, the white capital industry definitely is picking up all our cultural DNA and figuring out ways how they can kind of like digitize it. Um, but um yeah, I would say to point to a particular thing, it's probably the whole body of our installations. You know, we focus really on uh, interactive installations that we do. So the last piece that we did was on, uh, it was a big piece. It was about eight by, by eight by eight and was out in, at the Juneteenth. And it had a cutout of Africa on this, on this physical wall. And then behind that cutout, had all of the flags of Africa, about 54 flags or so. And then on top of that, um, an artist uh, uh, wrote um, Free Up Africa, State Capture, right? Symbolizing that Africa today is really in a state of state capture. It is outside entities, mainly former colonizers, that that control the continent, right? And these presidents that are in place today are maybe are more or less symbolic figures. They don't really, um, they don't even represent the people and they're selling out the resources of, and the people. Um, so that's uh, the most present to me and the most relevant. I think we're gonna continue to do some pieces around that concept of what it means for Africa to be free and uh, calling attention to the fact that we have a lot of presidents in the motherland that are pretty much sellouts and that are setting us so far behind, you know, um, mm-hmm. for the next generation to really step up and um, and have a thriving country wherever they are. And we get to see that so much here because while that's happening, uh, you know, on the continent, it's also uh, Oakland story. It's also New Orleans story. It's also the story of so many cities that are being gentrified and that there's so many interests um, that don't belong to the people and people are being pushed out. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in, in Oakland? And then, yeah. In Oakland is, uh, I mean, we spoke on it a little bit uh, yesterday. Uh, Oakland and San Francisco, uh, highlighted as the, the fastest gentrifying, gentrifying cities um, in, in the state, in the country. Um, when I activated the first warehouse in 2012, at that moment, 
you started to see, and this is in West Oakland, uh, heavy waves of um, hedge fund guys coming into West Oakland, um, outside, be it Asia or wherever it was, just people really on the ground um, here, in, here in Oakland. And mind you, West Oakland was still predominantly black, but on the back end, um, those that were purchasing uh, land uh, were white folks, right? And uh, which then set the table for eventually who would occupy these warehouses, these lofts, uh, and who was making up uh, the new city landscape, right? So I kind of was watching it happen, you know, uh, right before my eyes in 2012 as I was building out that warehouse. And, um, but there wasn't much organization, right? Everyone was like, yo, like, what do we do, right? Um, the West Oakland and all of Oakland was still reeling and coming out of the crack epidemic and the impact that that did, right? Mm -hmm. To black families, to black land ownership, to, and also some of the strategic um, and uh, oppressive and racist uh, development practices that were happening that led to what we see today. So we're in that right now. Um, and there is more attention um, and there's great work happening in East Oakland right now. So the East Oakland doesn't happen like what happened in West Oakland, but West Oakland really, there was just like an aggressive move on all of the land assets and captured peoples in our own neighborhoods. Right. Um, uh, anyway, that's, that's that. Um, like, yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting here. It's like really, really raw and in your face. Um, and we got the white liberals here, so they're still smiling your face and welcome you into their spots. But they own all the spots and they're, uh, you know, uh, and we're just more or less spectators, you know. So that's what we see here in West Oakland. Yeah, just a quick question. How do you how do you feel like your activations help to push against that, though? Like, you know, you're you're doing a work and trying to occupy a space. So what, what does that look like uh, through the work you do? In West Oakland, it really now is like uh, partnering with a few other different orgs. Uh, this isn't that much of a, a, a land footprint. You know, it's not that big of an area, but it's a very strategic and important part of Oakland because this is where a lot of the uh, black social movements um, uh, grew from. And it's right across the bay from San Francisco. Right. Uh, it's very strategic and important um, for whatever they plan for the next you know, uh, generation of how um, the East Bay looks. And so what we're really actively looking at right now is like, what are the sites that are coming up for sale and how can um, the community orgs be in that conversation that these landowners sell it to uh, people that look like us, right? And we're also aggressively looking to uh, purchase our first hub site here. Uh, we attempted to do that in our, in our last spot and we, you know, we ran against, against obvious uh, opposition uh, from the landlords who were these old white dudes who just didn't like what we were doing, right? So um, between ourselves, EB Preg and Black Organizing Project and a few of the other groups that are here, we're trying to bring awareness to what is left. And actually, there's still a lot of Black churches that are out here that are owned by Black folks. There's still some Black property here. Um, we're also really paying attention to what we do still have uh, in the Black um a community's hands that we can make sure that it stays in our hands. So that's kind of some of the work that's happening. So, you, you know, this is a lot, uh, 
<laughs> there's a lot of work here, a lot of strategy work, a lot of thought, a lot of resistance work, a lot of white supremacy. I'm wondering, you know, how, how are you taking a break? Where do you find a moment for rest? You know, I, I definitely, uh, I'm in, in this go hard um, aspect because, you know, growing up in that, in that conscious era, uh, there was a, a saying that always sticks with me. Once you've been blessed with the truth, right? Once you've been, you know, uh, brought into the light, it's your duty now to do this work, to carry this work, right? And to and to pass it forward to the next generation. And there is a lot of talk today about like, hey, needing time for black joy and black enjoyment and black life and black healing. And that is all there and that is all necessary. But the fight still must go on, right? You got to have a grit element because they are aggressively trying to take us out and erase us, right? So we do uh, make a point to carry uh, that black power you know, line and that black power energy, right? With the work that we put out, right? Um, and so um, it, it is go-go um, until we can get some solid wins. You know, when you look at the situation in West Oakland, we don't have that many wins. So we don't have that much, you know, uh, time to rest on our, like, uh, you know, just kind of like take it easy. Cause it's just, it's, it's, it's really like an aggressive, you know, attempt to just take us all out in a sense. Right. Um, but, um, to that point, I wanted to highlight, uh, to going back to your last question, we're working on a project, uh, to really look at how we can like do this work in an impactful way, we do have to look at what happened to get to this point. So we're, 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 we're looking at what happened in the 1960s with some, um, basically a redevelopment plan that was put in place in, in West Oakland by a black redevelopment like chairperson, right? So we're trying to tell the story of what happened in the 60s. How did that, how did that, uh, how did those plans that were implemented at that time impact what we see today, right? So so that we can figure out how we can move forward in the future, right? So this before, present, and future lens of, and using the arts to tell that story. So that's an important kind of like project we're, we're involved in right now with uh, EB Prec, which is another community partner. Thanks for that. Um, so, you know, right now we're seeing a lot, like this huge shift where everybody wants to be like pro-black, right? So whether it's, you know, these solidarity statements we're seeing from these corporations or these like, you know, many donations that they call in mega investments in blackness or as people in the media or, you know, even government getting into it with like, you know, the, the black street art or black placemaking. Um, because your work is really rooted in, in this idea of uh, cultural equity, um, how do how do you wrestle with like this moment of like co-optation like people really just trying to kind of buy into a narrative and you know and own so how do, how do you wrestle with that well you know you try to find it, it, it's interesting there is a certain level of like just it's trendy and folks are jumping on the bandwagon um i guess if there's attention towards it and you can find a way where you can find the right allies with the good intentions uh, to take advantage of that, that's, that's, you know, all good, you know? Um, but we do have to be careful 
with what kind of um, alliances we are making and the intentions of certain people that do step up. Cause you see corporations that, you know, that never gave a damn now stepping up and saying, Hey, you know, uh, we want to, uh, do this or, 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 uh, you know, give money to this and that. Um, and there's a difference between just patronizing and some tokenized, you know, uh, um, thing that they do versus really systematically looking at their involvement in the system of white supremacy and how they can step up and say, Hey, like, this is, this is how we're changing moving forward. Right. And when you look at slavery and all the banks that were involved in the slave trade, right. When they step up and say, look, this is what we did. This was dirty. And this is how we're going to uh, uh, get back here. Uh, then we see real change. Right. Uh, but if they're just more uh, symbolic gestures uh, of folks kneeling and uh, folks um, giving a grant here or there, um, it really doesn't address the systematic uh, oppression, oppressing, oppression that's, that's, that we have right now and how white supremacy is tactically still uh, intact in every part of our day to day, you know what I'm saying? From the educational system to the economic system to how, you know, Lily dad is, you know, got a hundred thousand that he can lend her so she can get this uh, cafe popping in our hood now. Right. Uh, because these, these, these hipsters that you see activating and gentrifying our hoods, they're getting funded from parents, mm-hmm. from banks, from a whole lineage of advantages that they have that we don't have, right? Um, so um, that's some of uh, the stuff that needs to be honestly, um, um, you know, held 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 up. Like, yo, like, let's talk about this. And and if you really mean to to, if you really want change, we have to address these inequalities and advantages you have. Right. Like a lot of people, even you know. Um, off top, oh, a hundred grand from undergrad and grad school. And yeah. so, you know, it's not like you're just walking into a bank, you know, look, so if anybody wants to cancel my debt, uh, feel free to reach out to me on IG at Mary D. Moran uh, and pay all my debt. I hear there's some uh, nice uh, white folks and Quakers who, who pay off debts. That's powerful. That's real. And what is it ask? Really? You know, if, if they really mean change, if they really want to change, what are our asks? And, and right. not to not to shortchange ourselves. Right. Because this is and this negotiate is- against ourselves. Yeah. Like sometimes we're willing to give so much and do so much work and do all of these things and knowing that, you know, we get coins. Yes. And so to really, I mean, and as I think about that, we really can't even assess what our ask is until we really assess the full impact of what's happened, you know, as a result of the African Holocaust, as a result of uh, European colonization of Latin America, Asia, uh, we really have to really do a deep dive of the long-term effects and on, on mother nature, you know, that, 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 that there's no amount of money that you can, you know, uh, give back when you've extracted minerals that then destabilize, you know, uh, the natural resources and the animals that have, you know, long terms, uh, you know, generational upon generational impact. What is, what is that worth? Right. So, uh, aside from our monetary, um, um, uh, benefits, uh, what, what, what is it, what, what, what are we really talking about as far as, um, the mother nature too? Yeah. 
And in the Bay, uh, like the Chinese community, the Cambodians and uh, like Mexicans are so deep out there. I'm just wondering um, like what it looks like. Is, is there any coordination happening amongst uh, black folks, brown folks and, and Asian fam? Um, you know, where white supremacy is, is structured where blacks are on bottom and every other group is on top, right? So those groups have certain advantages and they're not necessarily going to be like, yo, let's work with you in a real way. We got, you know, this property right here. Let's let's come share it or, you know, let's share assets. Um, you don't really see that. Um, you see, you know, younger generations, of course, uh, um, coming out and protesting. But when you come back to the real work and where we're at, it's status quo, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Chinese in particular have Chinatown that insulates them, that protects them. They have their land properties. Uh, they own a lot of assets, you know, be it that they were helped by um, early on um, in how they operate because they really operate together economically. Right. Um, and they were not victimized. Right. They were not aggressively targeted uh, by the by the war on drugs, by police brutality um, and by straight up racism um, to whatever degree. Right. Um, so black people were just specific and brown people were specifically aggressively targeted. And it set the table for where we're at right now, which made us very vulnerable to displacement and um, and being more or less slaves to this new economy that's developing here, which is the tech industry. The tech industry is going in heavy into Oakland, right? We just had Square move into downtown, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and they give little pigeon, you know, $10,000, you know, grants to do this and the surface level, uh, you know, um, support for the community. But it doesn't mean anything um, when, you, when, you, when you weigh it with the impact moving forward and what it means for these tech giants to now drop into Oakland. So, you know, we, we talked, we talked about we, a lot about resistance and, and dealing with, with capitalism and white supremacy. If we could put that, if we could in an imaginary sense, put that to the side, where would you imagine black and brown people in the future? I would imagine us Back in our natural inhabitants, back, um, you know, I mean, I, I say we, we're, we're citizens of the world. So um, I think just coming back into our original ways culturally um, and how we deal with one another, um, how we practice our uh, ancient traditions and coming back into the earth, right? Uh, and that's happening in many ways in, in, in many uh, folks within our circles that are, are doing this work. But right now there's just such, such an imbalance where uh, focus is, you know, uh, business and economics and surviving in this modern construct of white, uh, what's been built. But if we can step away from that and have time to really uh, find our true selves, um, it would mean us like just being one with nature, right? Uh, if, if it means going back to the motherland uh, and finding our tribe there, uh, so be it. But uh, it's a really a personal journey, you know, of being in a place mentally that I'm not constantly worried about what I need to do to survive, mm-hmm. but I'm in a very uh, uh, abundant space and I can grow into my true identity, right? So, it, and it can just happen right where you're at, right? That's beautiful. But to that point, the world is, the white man's world is falling apart. How we can prepare in the present that we are painting a future that 
really connects back to our people's true identity is real. It's real work that, you know, on a day to day, you got to think about, right? You know, so. Come on, chanting down Bobby Lam. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, uh, no, man, thank you so much. Yeah, I just feel so, uh, so restored, you know. That's right. You know, as we, we and we, we want to make sure that people um, have ways to support you personally and also the work you're um, doing. How do folks connect with you? What do, you know, how do they get in touch? What do they, what's the Venmo? What's the PayPal? You know, how do they pour into you and connect to the work? The Venmo or the cash app for Elena is uh, at Elena Museum uh, or the cat, the ca- I don't know what it is. Is that the cash app? The little, yeah. So Elena is A-L-E-N-A Museum. Um, our IG is at Elena Museum, uh, elenamuseum.com. Uh, my IG is the Oxamite and yeah. Uh, and a plug to a for-profit project that we're working on called Zalu, which is really centered around using the lens of Afrofuturism to, to create active, uh, black spaces. So, uh, which is tied into the nonprofit. Um, so look out for Zalu when we really fully launch that. Mm. But, um, yeah, man. Um, shout out to y'all for connecting and, um, Man, we appreciate you. Appreciate you, yeah. too. Mm. Thank you, homie. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, this week, we want to elevate, uplift, and love on our sister, Jill Scott. Jill, you are everything. You are a goddess. You are brilliant. You are beautiful. You gave us... Um, living our lives like it's golden. I am just, you know, uh, you gave us Crown Royal on ice. Yo, you gave uh, us a walk <laughs> in the park. I mean, what did you not give us? Mm. You, 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 I mean, are just so beautiful. When I think about, um, you know, when that first album dropped, uh, what was the name of her first album? Lord, I just remember she was... I, I think it's Who is Jill Scott. Was that Who is... Oh, Who is who Jill is... Scott. Yeah, yeah, I guess I was... Right, Who is Jill Scott. You know, and she came out with that denim uh, shirt, with that yo. wrap and that skirt. Everything. Honey Molasses, yo. Honey Molasses. Everything. Everything. So, uh, I, I just, you know... I am just uh, so sorry that whack ass Kyle Kiero, uh, whatever football team he plays on, I I never even heard of the person um, and his emotional abuse around uh, talking about. He said, um, "What did he say? He said people are attracted to Jill Scott. By no means is she ugly." Um, but y'all are really sexually aroused by her, huh? So it's an energy thing. Got it. I know he didn't lost his whole damn mind. I've never heard of anything like this because all I know is everyone that I know thinks Jill Scott is fine. Yeah, I think, like, bruh. Like, what rock did you yeah, just come out of? you're at a loss did of you, words. Like, because... did, did, you, <laughs> did you just miss, did you miss verses? Because, like, if, if you didn't know before, like, the, the verses... 
we, we could keep going back to all the right because she spits, she'll you know. hit you. I mean, her energy, you know, why Kyle wasn't feeling her? His vibration is so damn low, like he can't even <laughs> see her, he can't reach her. Is like his vibes, his vibration is, is so low. Bruh, gonna have to get his vibrations together. Burns of Sage, fam. Bruh, like you know, I'm just gonna follow what uh, Tory Lane say. He was like, "You can't trust a uh, you can't trust a brother that don't find Jill Scott attractive." Because like, well, facts. If you so if you're so obsessed with uh, a certain type of physicality that's based in like Eurocentric ideas about what beauty is, then first off, we starting off wrong. Two, for you to decide to open your mouth to come at Jill and you don't even know Jill like that. Right. That's the thing. You could feel, you could, you could have some kind of, you know, uh, I I would say many men, if not most that I know, uh, you know, have white centered ideas around love, around body, around gender. Fat phobia is all the way real. Um, you know, one of my favorite writers, KSA Lehman, in his book Heavy, talks about, you know, sort of this idea of like fat bodies and this idea that everybody deserves pleasure and um and everybody deserves love without condition. And so um it's even this idea of who is worthy of love, who is worthy of attraction, of being attractive, right? This idea of slim thick, all that is based off of fat phobia, based off of um, white supremacy. And it was cl- it's clear uh, that's what Kyle Kiero is, uh, that's the kind of lotion he uses every day. He lathers it all over his body. Not lotion. Head first. Uh, not I mean, lotion. <laughs> yeah, that's what he lathers himself with because he's just the most. I can't. So, yeah. Mm. You know, and then the the apology letter is just like like bro, you could have you could have just saved that and saved us time and energy. Like nobody wants to read that, especially cuz you decide to put your foot in your own mouth and start talking about somebody you don't know, somebody you don't like. You know, my folks would say if you don't got nothing to say, don't say it at all. So why are you wasting our time? Right. But, you know, being the queen and handling herself like a queen and, you know, you know, I would have just dragged that thing all the way down, up and down Twitter. I would have said, no, here, black Twitter. (laughs) Here he is. You know, I would have sent him all the way to the to the lion's den. Um, She she really used it as a moment to uh, uplift what's real and uplift the um, Breonna Taylor and Oluwatoyin and really to get back to center, bro. You, you talking about the Mm. wrong things. You thinking about the wrong things. Uh, and so I just applaud Jill Scott. I love you, my girl. What I will say to every, um, fat person, to everyone, you know, who ain't even saying fat, who's, you know, a big girl, whatever you want to, you know, plus size, um, take up space, love yourself, you know, uh, and love on other people. Duh. I mean, not that we're not already, because let me tell you, we out here getting chose every single day, all the time. It's, it's not a problem. It's, well, it actually is a problem. Uh, and (laughs) so take up space, you know, uh, and 
tell whoever you feeling. I mean, tell them, you know, that's how I'd be like, Hey, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it's real. Uh, take up space. Love yourself. We are so um, fine. And, you know, fucks with us. And if you don't, don't fuck with us. Like, period. There's no need to go on Twitter. Right. Like, yeah, that's it. That's that on that. There you go. We love you, Jill. So this week for our Rising Ritual, we'll be closing out with an affirmation that I've gotten from um, our living elder, uh, Miss Ayan Levanzant. Sorry about that. (laughs) My bad. No, she is an elder. Listen, I respect her work. And I used to love, I remember in undergrad, I had that little purple book with like affirmations and stuff. And I used to read them every single day. What is that? Acts of Faith? That's what Acts of Faith. You already know Acts of Faith. Listen, everybody has that book in their house. Here's my thing is as soon as she got that show and when she had Karuchi on there, then I noticed like a pattern. She'd be dragging the people on them uh, on that show. <laughs> My God. Looks, but okay. Look, okay. Um, look, I'll say the this. elder. This what I'm gonna say. Divinity comes through flawed bodies sometimes. Flawed people. Facts. So we're going we to leave it there. So give grace and please give us grace. Right. So, uh, yeah, this affirmation actually has come from this like COVID series she's been doing for the last like eight weeks that has been able to invite people in to kind of navigate like them having a sense of imagination about their relationship with family, um, being trapped inside and really starting to declare um, a new vision for their life. And so I'm going to read this affirmation. And um, as we are imagining, you know, new relationships for us in the future, black and brown folks, whether it's our body, um, our intimate relationships, or it has to do with... Our relationship with the world. Oh, our, yeah. yeah, our relationship with, with the, the the spaces that we exist in. Um, we need to be declarative and actually like live in the moment now. Call the, call the thing to be now. So we'll start. My prosperity begins as a state of mind. My prosperity begins as a state of mind. I am abundant, prosperous, and healthy right now. I am abundant, prosperous, and healthy right now. Knowing, allowing, and accepting this truth, all that I need comes to me easily. Knowing, allowing, and accepting this truth, All that I need comes to me easily. I am grateful right now. I am grateful right now. And to that we say, Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. Wow. Well, thank you for that. That was that was nice. Look, we should have started with that. Uh, <laughs> get a good vibe in here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, um, thank you so much, family, for listening to the Black and Brown Get Down. Please subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, slide in our DMs if you have any questions or if you have any recommendations for us. Follow us on Instagram at the Black and Brown Get Down. Uh, yeah, we thank you so much. Love you. Bye. Peace.